Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Calling these products irresistible is dangerous. Calling these things addictive and saying that they are, Tristan Harris says they are hijacking your brain, is dangerous. And the reason it's dangerous is because of this concept called learned helplessness, which, is, which tells us that when people reduce their sense of agency, when they begin to believe that something is controlling them, when they give up their internal locus of control for an external locus of control, they begin to act accordingly. So mm-hmm. it is true that these products are meant to habituate you. They are meant and designed to change your behavior. But to call them addictive, to say that they're controlling our brains, that we cannot resist them, is not helpful because it's not true. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And on this episode of Look Up, I interview Nir Eyal, Nir writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He's an entrepreneur and investor who has started two companies and invested in many more, including Eventbrite, Refresh.io, and Anchor.fm, which was sold to Spotify. He's the author of the best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And more recently, he wrote Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life which is the book that Nir and I mostly discussed. Nir has also been a professor at his alma mater, the Stanford School of Business. This was a great conversation uh, because Nir challenged some of the ideas that I held before we met. His goal is to put the power back into the hands of the individual. So we dive deep into what constitutes addiction versus habit-forming behavior. Nir questions the very premise that we're addicted to our phones because he believes that it takes our own individual power away from us. We discuss learned helplessness and the steps that we can take to regain control of our attention. For those of us who feel hopelessly addicted to technology, this episode can offer some guidance on how to start breaking bad habits. I also learned that an old study claiming that willpower is a finite resource was actually debunked. And what's more interesting is that willpower only acts like a finite resource if you believe that it is. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. As always, the important links are in the show notes. If you want to learn more, uh, feel free to email me at mark, M-A-R-C, at thelookuppodcast.com if you have any ideas, recommendations, or questions. This is Nir Eyal. Thank you, Nir, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Um, I know it's it's new, and you know you've been on a lot of these before, so I really appreciate of you, course, of course, agreeing to come on. Um, no, your topic is so laser focused with something I'm so passionate about, and mm. has spent more than a decade now before it was cool thinking about it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, it's yeah. crazy to me. I mean, it's 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 really finally catching steam yeah. um, with the mainstream audience, which I think is so so good. Um, I think awareness is like the absolute first step. So. Mm-hmm you know, what you're doing um, in writing about this, I think, and really kind of going deep on how it works is, uh, is crucial. Um, 
we just don't understand just how badly our our attention is manipulated. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> for, for I just I just want to make sure it doesn't creak too yeah, much on the sure. sound, so I'm going to stop touching the table. All good. Um, yeah, and and I think when I got started in this field, I started out in uh, 2007 in this field. So this was before apps even existed, at least as we know them today. Mm. There was no such thing as as apps on and, the iPhone. At and least when you say this field, um, what do you just define? Of behavioral design. Ah, yeah. Okay. So when I got started, uh, we started this company uh, on, we were building uh, advertising for Facebook apps because back then apps, nobody, when someone said apps, nobody was talking about what we think of today as apps on your iPhone because the Apple App Store didn't exist. It didn't come out until 2008. <laughs> it's so hard to imagine right. a world without the Apple App Store. Exactly, yeah, we both exactly. Grew up in that world. But what we saw very quickly, <laughs> what was amazing at that time is that, you know, this was when Facebook was still very young. People were making apps, uh, and this was the time of people throwing sheep at each other. Remember those days in like Farville and all the silly yeah. things that people were doing on, on Facebook apps? And what we saw in the business that, that I helped co-found was that you could reach millions of people in the span of days, as opposed to it used to take you know months, if not years, to reach a million people. All of a sudden, the, the, through viral spread of these apps, you could reach a lot of people very quickly. Mm. And that was really fascinating because the the... The knock-on effect of that was that very quickly, many of these apps just died. You know, like they would get a million people to use them. Oh, thank you. Thanks. They would get a million people to, to download the app and start using it. And then, you know, a, a week later, nobody would use it anymore. And so that was my vantage point to try and understand the, the psychology behind retention. What is it that makes some apps so successful while others just, you know, perish because nobody uses them anymore? And so my thinking was, you know, wow, we could... We could take the psychology that's at the root of many of these products uh, and use it for good, right? Why is it that mm. only the gaming companies and only companies like Facebook and YouTube, you know, why should they have a monopoly on consumer psychology? We can use the same psychology for good for all sorts of things. And that's why I got into writing Hooked. Mm. And, and what I guess first let's dive into the psychology mm -hmm. of it. So, you know, I recently had the privilege of speaking with Adam Alter, um, who wrote Irresistible, and we talked a little bit about um, about, you know, these hooks that you describe, um, what are kind of the emotions that, uh, today's app developers and some of the large, uh, tech giants, Fang, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google are, mm -hmm. are tapping into what emotions specifically? Yeah. So the, the first part of the hook model, which is what I describe in my book hooked the, there's a four part model. And the mm -hmm. first part and the most important part is what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is a negative psychological state that we seek to escape. Now, let's back up just a second to say, okay, if we ask ourselves what techniques are companies using to drive our behavior, we need to back up and ask a more fundamental question of what drives our behavior, period, full stop. And the answer to that is not what most people understand it to be, that most people are still operating under this, what's called the pleasure principle, which was first proposed you know, a long, long time ago, but it was popularized by Freud, right? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was you know, Epicurus before that had something very similar, but, but Freud kind of popularized this notion of the pleasure principle, uh, which says that humans pursue, all motivation is, is around the drive to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Turns out that's not true. Oh, interesting. That, yeah, neurologically speaking, it turns out that all human behavior is motivated by a desire to escape discomfort. It's called the homeostatic response. So when you feel cold, 
you put on a jacket, you're spurred to action and put on a jacket. When you uh, feel hot, you take it off. When you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs, you eat. When you're full, oh, that doesn't feel good, you stop eating. So that's physiological responses uh, to discomfort. The same goes for psychological responses to discomfort. So when you are feeling lonely, you check Facebook. When you're feeling uncertain, you Google. When you're feeling bored, you check Netflix or stock prices or sports scores or the news, the list goes on and on. So the most important psychological hack that these companies use is to understand your internal trigger. Now, this isn't sinister per se. We have to talk about the ethics of manipulation because it's not necessarily that manipulation is always a bad thing. Well, how can that be? Isn't manipulation always bad? Not really. We pay for the privilege of being manipulated, right? When, when you go to the movie theater, you know that that is just a flickering screen, of light, mm. right? Those aren't real people with real emotions, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, Brad Pitt is being paid to fake you out and manipulate your emotions and you pay for the privilege. So it's not that manipulation is always bad. And there's two types of manipulation. I talk about this a lot. I've written an article about, about how to use this for good. Yeah, one thing, one thing I've noticced, and, and sorry to interrupt, but one yeah. thing I've noticed from your work and kind of hearing you speak today is, you know, you're very, you have a very specific wow, I might make myself sound really stupid right now. <laughs> Praxeology. Is that the word I'm going for? You're de you define things very clearly, very specifically. Well, words really matter. This is yeah. what bugs me so much about this debate, and specifically this word addiction. And this is the word that I think uh, gets tossed around so much that we don't know what it means anymore. My wife got a box from this company, DSW. You know, it's a shoe company. Yes. And on the side of the box, it says, danger, highly addictive contents inside. We're talking about shoes, <laughs> right? And this is the problem I think people make with technology and people don't realize that using the wrong words can backfire, can literally make things worse. And so, you know, I, I love Adam Alter. He's great. He's, I, you know, I appreciate his contribution to the field. But look, calling these products irresistible is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Calling these things addictive and saying that they are, Tristan Harris says they are hijacking your brain is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's dangerous is because of this concept called learned helplessness, which, is, which tells us that when people reduce their sense of agency, when they begin to believe that something is controlling them, when they give up their internal locus of control for an external locus of control, they begin to act accordingly. So mm -hmm. it is true that these products are meant to habituate you. They are meant and designed to change your behavior. But to call them addictive, to say that they're controlling our brains, that we cannot resist them, is not helpful because it's not true, which is why I wrote Indistractable. Indistractable is, is really about this five-year journey that I went through, starting from believing this idea that it's all technology's fault. Uh, and then I tried all these techniques. I tried digital minimalism, and I tried digital detoxes, and I did everything that the books were, were telling me to do, yeah. and it didn't work uh, because I didn't deal with a deeper psychology, because I didn't, I didn't understand the psychology of distraction. So much to unpack there. I love it. Um, and I love to see how, you know, meeting new people in kind of a similar field, but the way that you approach it differently is going to start to build on itself, you know? Um, so going back to definitions, um, addiction versus habit, mm -hmm. I think you kind of described it. Addiction is something that we lack agency over. So let's define it. Let's, let's, let's define get it, it yeah. out there. Uh, so ha a habit is a an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. It's about half of what you do every day. 
nothing bad about habits. We have good habits and we have bad habits depending on whether they serve you or whether you're serving it. Mm. So uh, the book, you know, Hooked, I, my publisher wanted me to call it How to Build Addictive Products, and I didn't, very intentionally. I called it How to Build Habit-Forming Products with the intent that, that people who- That been an interesting battle. It was a little bit. It was a little bit. But, but the intent <laughs> was that, you know, we can use these same techniques for good, right? And so I didn't write the book for Facebook and for Google. And, you know, the, those companies already knew those techniques. Yeah, I wrote the book- well. Yeah, I wrote the book for everybody else, for these companies that are trying to make products to help people exercise more. Like uh, uh, Fitbot is a company that used the app. Uh, a company like Kahoot in the educational space that just went public, uh, largest, uh, most widely used educational software in the world. So we can use these same techniques for good to help people improve their lives. Now, That's why I wrote Hooked. But, now, but let's get back to the definition of addiction. Yeah, this is super important. Let's go to that. So a habit is an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. An addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So it's something that hurts you. That's critical in definition. And despite efforts to stop, you can't stop. And so when people say that technology is addictive, they are taking what is a pathology and they're making it into something colloquial that, that we blame on everything. Oh, I like Facebook a lot. I'm addicted to it. Well, not really. One, have you tried to stop? And number two, does it do you harm? And number three, despite the harm and despite you trying, can you not stop? And so Indistractable gives people a recipe. And it's not your fault, by the way. I'm not guilt tripping anybody. Yeah. I went on this journey myself of saying, oh my God, it's a technology doing it to me. I tried these techniques. And you know what? I found the, these series of techniques that we can use. And I discovered, I hate to tell you, it's not that hard, mm. right? There are some really basic things that we can do if we take agency over the problem. The problem is right now, we're waiting for the government to save us. We're waiting for Mark Zuckerberg to do something. Why are we waiting? We can do something about it right now, and it's not that hard. Well, I definitely want to dive into kind of those practices because I think that's really important for people to hear, um, that they can take agency over their own lives. Um, I, it's funny because I feel myself, maybe because of the, the journey that I'm on right now, feeling a little bit, um, you know, a little bit reluctant to accept that we do have that agency. Um, because I know so many people that this technology does harm, you know, it, it does harm their interpersonal relationships. It harms their mental health. Um, they're depressed, they're jealous, um, they're feeling inadequate. And those emotions are exacerbated by the perpetual, um, bombardment of media through these platforms that is designed to make them feel lacking so that they can continue using those platforms. And so I feel like in those three criteria you mentioned, one being does it do harm, um, that that does actually, that box does get checked for many of us who, who struggle with social media habituation, we'll call it, rather than addiction. Um, and then the, the second part of that, that I think, you know, leads me to believe that some of this is addictive is I don't know that that people do have the ability to control themselves with some of these practices because chemically they are, you know, the, the kick I get from likes is so similar to the kick I would get from doing a line of cocaine. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. <laughs> this is something yes, that the press, this is this is something that the press has repeated ad nauseum. Okay. No neuroscientist will tell you that that is in any way, shape, or form true. Okay. We are not injecting Instagram. We are not freebasing Facebook. These are behaviors. And people can get addicted to behaviors. But let me, let me posit this question. 
I used to say when I first started on this journey that, uh, that these technologies are like cigarettes. This is something that Ian Bogo said, a professor at Georgia Tech. He said, you know, technology is a cigarette of this century. And I used to repeat that. Yeah. It's something I, and, I say, actually. And it's bullshit. And oh, the reason great. it's bullshit is because bullshit. technology yeah. is not like <laughs> cigarettes because cigarettes have a substance in them called nicotine, which enters your brain and does things to your brain. It affects your prefrontal cortex and does certain things to your, to your brain. Now, there's a lot of interesting science we can go into later about how that happens. But let's take a pause here because I don't say that anymore because what technology is really like, if anything, if we want to compare it to a drug, it's not like cocaine. It's certainly not like heroin. It's not like cigarettes. Mm. It's like cannabis. It's like cannabis. Cannabis, we all know, has nothing chemically addictive about it. You agree? I don't. I'm not. Can, well, I don't know enough. Anybody, anybody who studies addiction will tell you that, that uh, THC is not chemically addictive. Okay. And yet. I know a few potheads that might. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yet 8% of people who smoke cannabis have what's called a cannabis use disorder. Mm. Well, how can that be? If there is nothing chemically addictive about cannabis, it's ironic, by the way, that we live in an age where people want to legalize cannabis and regulate, regulate. technology. Yeah. And neither of them are chemically addictive. There's nothing that breaks the blood-brain barrier when it comes to cannabis or Facebook. And so why is this? Why do we have this double standard? And yet, you know, even though there's nothing chemically addictive about cannabis, 8%, which is crazy high, 8% of people who smoke cannabis have a cannabis use disorder. Why is that? Because addiction is never just about the substance. Nobody falls on a heroin needle and says, oh my gosh, now I'm addicted. You know, over a million women every year when they get a cesarean section in the United States receive fentanyl. Fentanyl. This is the highest grade opiate that you can get. It is much better than street heroin. Why aren't they all addicted? It's a highly addictive substance. This is the problem. When we perpetuate this myth of addiction, and well, now the latest- they probably don't want to repeat that. Um, because they that don't practice. need it. <laughs> this is the thing. And this is where I think what, what many people see, they see people who overuse technology- and they are miserable. And they assume that they became miserable, that it's causing mental illness. The causality is exactly backwards. People are overusing technology, particularly kids, because of these internal triggers, because there is stuff in their life that they don't know how to deal with without escaping reality. And that is the root of all addiction, pornography addiction, booze addiction, food addiction, or technology addiction. Mm. And so unless we acknowledge that fact, if we keep blaming the substance, we are doing the exact same thing we used to do in the 80s when Nancy Reagan was telling us just say no. That's a load of bullshit about drugs. It's the same bullshit about technology. Well, I think it's the same, you know, and to, to flip that a little bit, you know, Nancy Reagan saying just say no is also trying to give back agency to the individual to say you can say no to drugs, right? But- in both cases, um, they're ignoring the deeper truth of yeah, why people do drugs. Yeah, exactly. And, and look, and, and, I, and I hear you on causality. Like it, it makes perfect sense to me that social media, in and of itself, is just a tool. It's a technology, and that tool can be used for great things, right? It is a con it is a connection engine. Well, well no, I'll go together. further than that. I'll tell you that if you have a susceptibility, mm. they're going to get you. Yeah. They will absolutely get you in this day and age. In this day and age, if you don't have the tools to be indistractable, if you don't know how to put this stuff in its place and deal with it, they will get you in the moment unequivocally. And it's harder than ever because it's ubiquitous. We're constantly carrying around these well, little slot machines. It's, it's in our pocket. Right. It's on our wrist. It's now in our ears. And it's going to be inside of our bodies. But we have we to stop it. using this as an excuse. 
we have, because we're talking about single digit percentages of people who actually have a pathology towards addiction. And those people deserve special protection. I wrote about this over three years ago, mm-hmm. that people who have addictions uh, ha- need special protection from these companies. And I've been talking to all the tech companies about having what's called a use and abuse policy to identify these so individuals and do something. KYCs into the platform, you know, I have this propensity, or they notice some data about this user. Right. So this is the big flags. difference. This is, a, this is a, an at-risk user. Exactly. And therefore, we need to do you something. Know, do something specific for this user. That's right. And, and you know, b- alcohol manufacturers can't do that. They don't know who the alcoholics are. But these gaming companies know. <laughs> yeah. And so I've been talking to all of them about this is something that, this is the lowest hanging fruit. If there's anything we do need to regulate, if there's anything these companies can do today, mm. it's doing something about A, children, they can do something about it, and B, people who are actually addicted. For everybody else out there, the 95 to 99% of us we have to take personal responsibility and stop blaming others for our problems. So here's the thing, though, right? Like personal responsibility, and you're definitely going to get into kind of the habits that you've identified. Um, you know, I talked about this with Adam, like, because his, it's funny, although you you both disagree on um, the word addiction. In fact, I think he talks a little bit about top down, but he also mostly focuses on bottom up, right? So what practices can we put into place? I also interviewed a gentleman named Thomas Sobel, who created a company that is about forming healthy habits around technology. So wake up in the morning, don't touch your phone for an hour. Before you go to bed at night, do the same. Set limits, boundaries. When I'm at dinner, I don't have my phone with me, and I hope that you don't either. Go out and do something fun with friends instead. Mm -hmm. This is all great. Um, The problem is the kind of unstoppable march towards the integration of this technology within the human. Um, You know, I mentioned this in another episode. Josh Wolf at Lux Capital talks about the half-life of the human tech interface, right? In the 70s, it was mainframes. You go up with a couple of plugs, beep, bloop, bleep. You plug into the computer, and then that accelerated through desktop, through laptop, through mobile phone, which is separated by a uh, thin piece of cloth for men, uh, to the Apple Watch, which is directly on your skin, to the AirPods, which are now in your ears. And before we know it, it will be in our eyes or wherever. Um, habit forming behavior becomes a lot more challenging when that tech is completely integrated into our being. And I see you patiently waiting here for me <laughs> to finish this thought. And I appreciate yeah, yeah, that. Take your time. <laughs> but I just, I, I, you know, a lot of the habits that I've been recommended go out the window as soon as I can't remove the tech from my person. Well, let's, let's deal with that problem when it gets here. Uh, yeah, there's but it's currently, on the way, right? Sure. So I think and let's, think let's I mean, yeah, I'm wearing a smartwatch. I love my earbuds, yeah. earbuds, earbuds, whatever they're I don't, called. AirPods. AirPods, yeah. yeah. They I, were earbuds for right. a little bit. <laughs> and, and, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I, I will, you know, I don't, it's very hard to prognosticate about technology that isn't here yet. Hmm. I will say that if you think the world is distracting now, you know, it's only going to become more distracting, right? As yeah. as technology continues to accelerate and become more pervasive as well as persuasive, it is going to become more challenging to put it in its place unless you know how. And that's really why I wanted to put together a framework that people can picture in their minds and teach others and wear with pride this moniker of being indistractable. Like I want becoming indistractable to be the moniker in the same way people today say that they're keto or vegan or whatever there needs to be a certain way of living that you can describe to somebody else that allows you to do what is today a very strange set of behaviors, right? Like, for example, when I write every morning, I hit a couple buttons on my phone, and if anybody texts or calls me, they receive an automatic reply that says, right now I'm indistractable. If it's urgent, text me with the word urgent, and it'll come through. 
It. Things like time boxing my calendar. So there's there's this picture that I can draw for you here mentally. Hopefully your listeners can can picture it as well about how to put all these techniques together mm. and teach other people in a way that is super impactful. But the first step, the first thing we have to stop convincing ourselves of is that we are powerless. Mm. Because when we tell, you know, there was this great study that found the number one determinant of whether an, a person who was addicted could recover after treatment was not the level of physical dependency. It wasn't what the drugs were doing to their bodies. It was their belief in their own power to change. Hmm. That was more important than their level of physical dependency. I, I, I'm, I'm really struggling with this, actually. This is great uh, because I, I haven't had an episode where I've really um, just disagreed. And you know so much more about this than I do, so I'm hoping to learn. But the difference here is when I'm a heroin user or a cocaine addict, the promoter of that substance is you know, a drug dealer or the people that I surround myself with. And so I can remove myself easily from those situations and rebuild relationships with people that are forming healthy habits, whether that be AA or, you know, some, some other organization, a religious group, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. In this instance, I'm battling thousands of engineers whose sole purpose- So what? There, well, it's this is repeated ad nauseum. So but, the fuck what? It doesn't why? matter. But not because there is nothing that Mark Zuckerberg that can have. do if you turn off your goddamn notification settings. Two thirds of people with a phone mm. never change their notification settings. What? Yeah, but here, but to, <laughs> again, just to flip that. Let right? me give like, you another one. Let me give you another one. When you shut your notification settings off, then you're left with this dull sense of maybe I'm missing something. So it's almost like the reverse happens. You so know? here's here's what we have to work through. This for me. The, the, this, maybe I'm this just is a, weak. This I is a perfect. No, no, no. This is not a guilt trip. That look, I went through this struggle. I yeah. did what the experts told me. I did what is you know what, what what all the experts say to do. It doesn't work. If first, let's let's walk through these four steps of the indistractable model. Okay. The first step is to deal with internal triggers. Okay. Ooh. So here I'm going to draw this picture in your mind first and foremost. So I want you to picture a number line. Okay. And to the right think it's traction. That right arrow is, is moving you towards traction. The opposite of traction is distraction on the left-hand side. So you got traction to the right, distraction to the left, okay? Mm. Traction is defined as any action that moves you towards what you want in life, what you really want to be doing with your time. Distraction is the opposite, anything that moves you away from what you really want to do, okay? So you got that. So you got a number line, traction, distraction. Now, You've got two arrows pointing to the center of that number line. On top is internal triggers. On the bottom is external triggers. Now, internal triggers, let's start with that. So you've got, you got four, basically two arrows pointing in and two arrows pointing out. Traction, distraction, yeah. internal trigger, external trigger. This is it. This is the indistractable model. And it starts, the first and foremost, most important step is to start with those internal triggers. Mm. Because if you don't deal with that internal trigger, that uncomfortable emotional state, that psychological response that is driving you towards distraction, you will always get distracted by something. Let me tell you my story, okay? I sat down with my daughter. Uh, this was probably, what, five years ago now. This was shortly after Hooked was published, my first book. And I sat down with my daughter, and we had this beautiful moment where I had the afternoon free, and I spent time with her with this book of uh, activities that daddies and daughters could do together. And maybe like an hour into playtime, uh, we had this, this, this book and, and one of the activities uh, was asked, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? Mm. 
And I remember that question, uh, and and I wish I could tell you what she said, but I couldn't because in that moment, I got distracted. I found myself on my device, and I wasn't listening to what she said. Oh, wow. And so that was this moment that I thought, oh, my God, I got hooked. I know how these, these things worked. I help people design products to create habits, and yet here I am. I got hooked myself. Yeah. And so that's when I went on this five-year journey to try and figure out. And the reason why it took me so long to finish this book is because I went down so many dead ends. I bought all the other books on how to control distraction, and none of them worked. Most of them say, get rid of the technology, and that's what I did. I, I, I got a word processor on eBay from the 1990s. This old library sold it to me, and it has no connection to the internet, and I was going to do my, all my writing on that. And I got a flip phone. I got this $12 flip phone on Alibaba that does nothing but make calls and send text messages. I got rid of my smartphone, and I used that. And here's what happened. I'd sit down at my desk, and I'd start writing, which is really hard, something I st- still struggle yeah. to get to. I get distracted just when like I one write. one of those things that you just have to sit down, and it yeah. takes yeah. a lot of time. And here's what I would do. Rest. No smartphone, no internet connection, yeah. but behind me, there's a bookshelf. I'd say, oh, you know what? I, I really should read that one book I've been meaning to read. Or, um, oh, you know, the trash. The trash needs to be taken out. Oh, you know what? The laundry really needs to be All folded of a sudden, right now. You're hungry. You need exactly. Another yeah. And you think this is a new problem? You're Socrates and Aristotle talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. It's called akrasia, this tendency that we have to do things against our better interest. Mm-hmm. So today it's Facebook and the internet. Yesterday, it was the television was broadening our brains. Before that, it was, you know, video games and yeah. comic books and the radio and the written word. All of these things were yeah. supposed to be rotting our brains. And we all did the same thing we're doing right now. Blame the technology. Blame the innovation. Mm-hmm. The fact is, if you don't deal with what you are trying to escape, look, the fact that I couldn't sit at the dinner table without wanting to look at my phone and I was snubbing my daughter and my wife it wasn't technology's fault. It's because there were issues that I wasn't dealing with in my life. There were things that I was trying to escape that I was uncomfortable with, and I didn't know how to deal with them in a healthy manner. And if we don't start from there, and this is where everybody, other, every other book on the topic goes wrong, is that it's, they look at the proximal cause. They look at, you know, it's like a, if you play pool. I don't know if you play pool, but, you know, Not you think, well. yeah, me neither, right? <laughs> so you think about, okay, what causes the cue ball to hit the next ball? Is it the stick or is it the player? Well, clearly the root cause is the player. The proximal cause is the stick. Mm. Everybody's blaming the stick. Everybody's blaming the technology. And what we need to do is to ask ourselves, what can we do differently? Because that is in our control. We, you know, we didn't create Facebook. It's not our fault that Facebook exists. Mm. But number one, it's not going away. And number two, it's our responsibility to do something about it. Mm. So the first step in this four-part model that I described earlier is dealing with those internal triggers. And I give a lot of techniques in the book on how to deal with that. There's a lot there, none of which is meditating or mindfulness, just so you know. Well, it's funny because those because meditating and mindfulness, in, in some ways, they it is overprescribed. Um, and I find specifically with my meditation practice that you know, it's still doing something. Yeah. Right? Like I am doing meditation. Yeah. Right? And there's it's nothing like, wrong with meditation mindfulness. I'm not yeah. anti. It's just been written about so much yeah, that a lot. I didn't have anything to add to that. Well, I, I do want to I do want to step in on the on the internal um, causes because, mm-hmm. you know, one, one of the ironies, it's actually not an irony in my opinion, but some people that I'm close with find ironic is that I am actually in fact, um, will use, I have a strong habit of using my phone very often. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I'm on this personal ex- exploration. I have to say it's actually gotten worse since I started this journey. Mm, interesting. And so like to hear you talk about, you know, taking agency, you know, um, it, it's kind of forced me in this very brief moment to reflect a little bit and say, mm. has it gotten worse because I've just 
I've just said, this is addictive stuff. And I tell my, you know, like I'm addicted, you know, like I can't help it. Right. And they're like, yeah, Mark, like, you know, <laughs> you're not addicted. Right. Um, you can control it. You don't right. need to look at Facebook right now. So that's, that's interesting. That's caused me to, to yeah. think about that. And, and I'll be the first to admit when I'm feeling particularly stressed, mm-hmm. lonely, anxious, uncertain, that's when I'm more likely to look for distraction. That's the, that's the, you know, all human behavior, as I mentioned earlier, all human behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort. And that means, if that's true, that all behavior is driven by a desire to escape discomfort, this homeostatic response, that means that time management and attention management is pain management. Hmm. We have to learn how to deal with our discomfort in a healthier way. And so I give these three techniques in the book of how to reimagine the trigger, how to reimagine the task, and how to reimagine our temperament. The reimagining the temperament is super important. This is where I talk about how the psychology community has really screwed us in the past decade or so by perpetuating myths or what we know today to be myths around concepts like ego depletion. Ego depletion is this idea that um, I got a lot of academic support uh, about a decade ago. The idea is that willpower decreases with effort. Uh, Roy Baumeister wrote this book uh, called yeah, Willpower. Willpower is a finite Exactly. Muscle, it's a finite, finite resource, resource that if, you know, he did these and studies so you where- focus on one habit, build, you build one habit at a time. Well, he, he, gave, he did these famous, famous studies where he, uh, he gave people lemonade. And if they drank lemonade, then their willpower was, uh, was filled up like a gas tank. Uh, mm. And it turns out those studies don't replicate, that ego depletion doesn't really exist. Okay. Except there is one circumstance where ego depletion does exist. And that one circumstance, surprisingly enough, is when people believe it to be true. Hmm. So if you believe that your gas tank has run out, that your ego is depleted, that you have run out of willpower, Allah, I am addicted. This technology is doing it to me. Hmm. Your temperament is such that you will act according to whatever it is you believe. So that is super important. Uh, so that, that's just the first step. <laughs> the yeah. second step, I'll go very quickly because I don't want to bore you here. The second step oh, is, is about making time for traction. So it turns out only about 10% of people out there keep a calendar, hmm. which means that we complain about getting distracted all day long without knowing what we got distracted from. And I call bullshit. If you don't know what is it that you plan to do, you have no right to say you got distracted. How can you tell the difference between traction and distraction unless you have it somewhere written down what it is you wanted to do? Mm. So if you plan time in your day, like I do, it's on my calendar, and this is a technique I had to learn over time. I, I kept a to-do list forever because you know I went to Stanford Business School and they say keep to-do list, and that's what I did. Yeah. It doesn't work. It doesn't I have, work. I have plenty of to-do lists. I right. put them in like an Eisenhower matrix. Exactly. So we, we keep these to-do lists because <laughs> we think magically if we write it down, it's going to get done. And that's yeah. not true. We have to plan the time, the input, not the output. So we plan out input for how much time we want to spend with our family, how much time we want to spend on ourselves, how much time we want at different work tasks, and how much time we want on social media. So in my calendar every day from 6.30 to 8.30, that's my social media time. And I enjoy it guilt-free because I have turned something that was otherwise a distraction into traction. That is exactly what I plan to do with my time. There's nothing wrong with it. What do you do when you're you're on social? Are you kind of... Are you mostly creating None of your damn business. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I do what everybody else does. I keep in touch with friends. I mean, you know how many friends there would be no way I would stay in touch with? I mean, yeah. I was born in Israel. I grew up in Orlando. Yeah. I went to school in Atlanta. I moved to New York. Then I moved to California. <laughs> now I'm back in New York. I've got friends all over the I country. Lot, Without social media, how could I possibly be connected to all of them? And so I love it. It's fantastic. Now, what I don't love was when I was using it when I didn't intend. 
that's when it's harmful. But if we use it with intent, it's perfectly fine. Interesting. And, and do you feel that that connectivity is valuable or do you, because this is a little bit of a loaded question, uh, so I'm going to rephrase it as not a question. I, que- I sometimes question whether I need to be connected to 5,000 air quotes friends instead of just being focused on, you know, call it 20 right. to 30 people in my tribe that I really want to spend time building those relationships. Right. So this is where we need to ask the question of what is the harm caused by these technologies? And the principal harm, I believe, is an opportunity cost. It's not melting your brain by looking at Facebook. That's rubbish. Video games don't rot kids' yeah. brains. I mean, we have <laughs> tons, tons of oodles of, of evidence. When I was younger, I was yeah. obsessed with that. Look, time. 90% of Silicon Valley engineers yeah. spend tons of time on playing yeah. video games. Builds the harm skills. done is the opportunity cost of what it displaces. Mm. So there is absolutely nothing wrong with checking social media for a, a defined number of hours per day by saying, this is time I want to spend connecting with friends and family. Totally healthy. What's not healthy is when we do it instead of the other things. And that's why we have to be conscious of the way we spend our time. Look, you could substitute our entire conversation with television, and it would be equally as bad. The average American watches five hours of television a day. Yeah. Okay, Facebook tells us that the average Facebook user only spends one hour a day on Facebook, but somehow we're... We're all, you know, well, it used it, to be television, right? As you mentioned, you know, so I've definitely. But now nobody about talks that. about it anymore. Why? Because it's old technology. Because we were born with it, and that's what happens with every successive generation. But the the, the nefarious effects are just as terrible well, with television. I, I wonder about that sometimes because I'm like, okay, is it just a this time is different? You know, every single time a new technology comes out, we want to, you know, there's people who want to rally against it. Um, I guess for me, as I've gone through that question, when I think about current tech. You know, I find it's because it's so hyper-personalized mm-hmm. and it knows so much about us um, and it's able to leverage that knowledge in order to not entirely control our behavior, as you're saying, but to influence our behavior. Um, that to me is much more um, potentially harmful and toxic than the TV is in my room and I'm going to go sit down and passively scroll through it. Well, it's also potentially much more helpful. Mm. Right. I mean, if oh my God, I mean, you know, if if you're, so I I grew up. uh, My coming of age was in the 1990s. My brother, my oldest brother, is 10 years older, came out as gay Mm. uh, back in this year. This was 1992. Oh wow, that was a really, really difficult time to come out. AIDS was called gay cancer back then. Wow, Uh, and I had nowhere to go. I had nowhere to go. I could not. it, It was a secret. Uh, my family didn't know. I knew. And I could not go anywhere. And I remember, I, I still get chills. I'm about to cry just thinking about it. It was the worst time in my life to go to middle school and uh, have this guy that I had, uh, that, that, you know, ha- having to keep a secret from my family. And I literally, I, I, I broke down one day and had to go to my guidance counselor, who was a super conservative Christian lady who was absolutely oh, wow. no help. Today, that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I was growing up today, I could go online and seek support and seek help. And find like-minded people because of the exact same reasons that you find technology to be harmful. Because Mm. it is personalized. Because it is customizable. Right? Mm. So we have to make sure that we accept the goods along with dealing with the bads. So you're not saying that the bads don't exist. Of course they exist. Paul Varillo said that you can't invent the ship without inventing the shipwreck. There are lots of bads. I am not a tech apologist. We need to take these companies to task for their monopoly status, for their yeah. data incursions, for, for the, mono, uh, for the um, uh, uh, election meddling. There's lots of yeah. stuff we need to hold these companies accountable for. But when it comes to this particular area 
of technology is manipulating us and, you know, rewiring our brains and it's hijacking us. It's rubbish. It's one area that is truly a distraction from the real questions that these companies need to hear from. Hmm, that's really interesting. So going back to your framework for becoming indistractable, um, you know, so number one is dealing with kind of the internal problems. It's funny, you know, like a lot of those, it's, it's odd that the same coping mechanisms are used for something like boredom and something like um, anxiety. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe anxi is anxiety just a form of boredom? No, I, th I think it's actually, it's uh, probably a, it's a, a unique uh, internal trigger. And it's something that people go to and have been going to all sorts of different products and services and people for comfort. It just so happens that uh, that this medium in our pocket is one that's that's more accessible, and you know many people find more helpful <laughs> than than past uh, mediums. Um, but but again, you know, I I think that using them correctly, and and this is nobody's fault. Again, I'm not guilt tripping anybody because I've been on this this journey myself. We just don't know the tools yet. We haven't adopted the the social norms for how to use this stuff in a way that that serves us as opposed to us serving it. So, you know, we talked about internal triggers. That's critical. Dealing with this uncomfortable emotional state, understanding that if you're getting distracted habitually, it's mm -hmm. always because of an escape from some feeling you don't want to feel. Then we've got to book our time. So we've got to make time for traction. That's the second step. We, you know, we talked about the indistractable model. So on the yeah. traction side. Actually, that was something I wanted to touch yeah. on. So I actually, I thought you were going to go in a different direction. Mm. I thought you were going to say, you know, bucket out time for deep work because that true. You know, that's that another too. focus. But Absolutely. you actually said, I'm going to actively bucket time for when I'm using right. this technology. And, and look, I, I love the concept of, of deep work, focused work. Uh, I don't like the concept of digital detoxes. And the reason, uh, another personal story from my early life, I at one point was clinically obese. Mm. And I went on all kinds of fad diets. Oh, wow. uh, I can't see it. <laughs> well, I, been, I still struggle with, with with food, but uh, yeah, one time, you know, my mom took me to fat camp and the oh, whole no like way. that was like oh, it was terrible. You but really anyway, all step on the scale. Yeah. Oh, terrible. Oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> you're going to send me back to, to I'm just camp of heavyweights right now. Yeah. I love that movie. No. Right. So so uh, one of the things that I did when I was trying to lose weight was go on some kind of crash diet. Mm. Okay, no junk food for 30 days. Guess what happened on day 31? I ate everything and then some. Yeah. And so when we tell people to go on these stupid 30-day digital detox, like, come on, it's ridiculous. Mm. My livelihood depends on me using these technologies. I just know so many people. It's like I delete Instagram, then I download it again. I delete right. it like I'm exactly. deleting Instagram today. Exactly. And then, then they just so so this leads into the, th the third point mm. of external triggers. Uh, so uh, we know that two thirds of people with a smartphone never bother to change their notification settings. Mm -hmm. And so my solution is not to stop using them, it's to use them properly. And one of the most important steps is to make sure that we give access to people to, to, to access us when it serves us, not the game maker, not the app maker, yeah. on our schedule, not theirs. So in the book, I talk about step-by-step -step how in less than 30 minutes, you can go through your phone and make it a phone that will, will not distract you anymore, right? And there's, it's, it's not hard stuff, but we also need to do it in other circumstances where we can get distracted. For example, on our desktop. Uh, at work, one of the biggest culprits when it comes to distraction is at work is not necessarily our technology. It's people stopping by our desk and saying, hey, I just want to talk to you for a minute. You know, this I'm, is why I hate working at the office. Exactly. I to work. <laughs> exactly. I, I go back from LA to New York. In LA, I'm at the office and I feel like I get nothing done. 
Right. And then in New York, I feel like I get a ton done because so, no one's there to bother me. That's exactly right. So we got to look at all these situations, all these environments where we could just get distracted yeah. and remove the external triggers, right? Remove those external triggers. And there's nothing that Zuckerberg can do about it, right? If you, so, so for example, Facebook, I love Facebook. It's very helpful. I don't use it on my phone. I use it on my desktop during a scheduled time of day. Yes. Right, um, so there's things like that that we can do to remove the external triggers from what our did, devices. How did you? I mean, did did you have to go through a process of literally changing your logins on your mobile phone for other applications? Because, you know, I also tried to not use Facebook on my phone, and then I always end up getting sucked back in because Facebook, in a way, has become a form of identity online. Mm-hmm. And so, you use it for all these other apps as a simple way to log into them mm-hmm. and for them to verify who you are. So I'd log into, you know like seamless or something to go mm-hmm. order food mm-hmm. and be like, your email's not connected. Yeah. You know, you need yeah. your Facebook. And maybe I'm lazy, but I just I just was like, all right, I'll just get back on Facebook on my yeah. phone before I knew it I was using it again for Messenger and all yeah, that. Yeah, you know, I have I haven't really thought of I tend to sign up on sites without my Facebook login for uh, some reason. I use my email address if that's an option. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I d I didn't really think about it for the context of this book around distraction as much. Mm. Yeah, I just I just think about, you know, Putting, putting things in context, right? Um, protecting yourself from these external triggers. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's like sometimes I feel like that can even exacerbate the problem. I mentioned this mm. earlier. You know, I've removed notifications from my phone. Yeah. Um, and all it's done for me is I, you know, I think maybe I need to work on step one. Mm. Maybe mm. that's what I'm realizing here. So you do have to use them in order. That is absolutely true. A lot of people yeah. will jump to the steps in in, in improper order, mm. and then it backfires. But let's go back to step one because I, I'm fascinated. By, by the way, there was, there's one more step we need to get to. Step four. All right, let's let's do step. <laughs> well, we four. can do that later if you want. No, let's do step four first. Okay, and then and then we'll go back to step one because I feel like step one is crucial, but it's also the most difficult. It is, and the there's most like difficult. an entire you know. Uh, millennia of work on on step one that (laughs) that we could talk about. Yes, and it depends on the severity of the problem. Look, Mm. uh, you know, I profile this lady uh, uh, in the book who gets, I I would, I I don't use the word lightly, but in this case, I think it's true. She gets addicted to her pedometer. Mm. You say, well, how can that happen? Pedometers are are these devices that make people healthier, right? It makes us walk more steps. Yep. I've heard many cases of this, by the way. And here's the underlying story. It wasn't the pedometer. It's never the pedometer. It's never the drugs. It's never the booze. It's never the porn. Addiction requires three factors, okay? It's kind of like, remember uh, when you were a kid, you learned about the fire triangle? And fire always requires heat, uh, fuel, and oxygen. You need those three things to have a fire. Same thing with addiction. Addiction requires three things. It requires pain. It requires an uncomfortable thing in your life that you're seeking to escape from. It requires a person with a predilection for addiction. And then finally, it requires the product, the thing that helps us escape that discomfort. Without those three things at once, you don't get addiction. You need all three. You need the pain, the person, and the product. If you take out one of those three things, you don't have the addiction. But the most important of those three is the pain. If, you ha- if a person is in emotional discomfort, mm. they will look for that distraction. So back to the story about this woman who was, attra- uh, was addicted to her pedometer. As I, as I learned more about her story, she did a, a TED Talk actually about how she got addicted to this pedometer. Oh, cool. But as I dug deeper into her story, she told me that she was at the same time that she got addicted to her pedometer, she was in the midst of getting a divorce. She was also very 
stressed out about getting her new academic appointment. Uh, she was looking for a job, and she was looking for a full-time professor engage, uh, professorship. And so she was using her pedometer as an escape from reality. I mean, you can go online, and you can find that people become addicted to anything. just about anything. Here's the thing I want you to remember. Any analgesic is potentially addictive. Anything that solves pain will addict someone. You will find people who are addicted to Tylenol, people who are addicted, of course, we know people who are addicted to uh, pornography or the internet, the news, alcohol. All of these things are addictive. I did a, a story once for The Atlantic where I talked to people who were addicted to Q-tips. Uh, no joke. <laughs> to log, type into Google, Q-tip addiction. There are people Stop who are it. pathologically no. addicted to Q-tips. Yes, That's because great. it solves pain. Not Anything that solves pain. Yeah, not great. Yeah. Anything that solves pain is potentially addictive. And so we have to deal with those internal triggers first, or we'll always find something. So, so on, and I know we have to get to number four, but kind of going back to the beginning of this conversation, you talked about how we can use behavioral design to, and an understanding of the psychology to create products that are actually helpful and useful yeah. for people. Yeah. So how can we tap into that? How can we tap into that pain and create something that's addictive and yet beneficial? Habit forming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was saying <laughs> Not addictive. addictive. <laughs> well, because maybe we yeah. want people to be addicted to, you know, to positive habit for we want them habituated to positive things so yeah. uh, addictions, addictions by always exactly addictions always fault. cause okay. harm we would so never want to create an addiction to but addiction is is an is an unfortunate byproduct of a of something that is used by sufficient numbers of people so sufficient numbers of people use q-tips somebody gets addicted so, so two billion people use facebook yes some people are addicted to facebook mm. But that's not because it, it's addictive to everyone, right? Uh, many, many people have a glass of wine with dinner. Tiny fraction of people are alcoholics, mm. right? So a product can be addictive and not addict to everyone. Um, but when it comes to how do we use this stuff for good, this is why I wrote my first book. I didn't write it for Facebook and the gaming companies and YouTube, far from it. I wrote it for companies like Paga. It was a, a client of mine. I do, I do consulting for them. They are, uh, it's, it's this, this app that has brought millions of people in Africa uh, uh, the ability to bank online for the first time. Conventional banks won't service these these folks. And yeah. so Paga uses the hooked model, the same exact hook model that Facebook uses, to build healthy habits around saving and spending money. Uh, Kahoot, I mentioned earlier, is the largest, uh, most widely used educational software in the world. They just went public in Norway. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a full disclosure. I invested in that company because I was so excited about them using Amazing. the hook model. Uh, if, you, if you have any school-aged children and you mention this company, Kahoot, nine times out of 10, they will have used it. Uh, same exact hook model. Uh, Fitbod, this is a cool story. So Fitbod um, was, is this company that makes uh, going to the gym uh, when you are in the gym and you have this internal trigger that I used to always have of what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> like you see all these meatheads, everybody seems to know what they're doing. Yeah. I don't know what to do. And you don't want to pay for the training. Exactly. Either. And no. so that's, that's the internal trigger of uncertainty, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I use now, I use this, this app. Every time I go to the gym, I don't know what to do. This app tells me exactly what to do because of the same step, uh, the same exact hook model that these, these other apps use. Yeah, so so already companies are using this this kind of framework to help. Right. Right. Got it. And so what what about number 4? Okay, so we talked about uh we talked about mastering your internal triggers. We talked about making time for traction. Uh, we talked about hacking back the external triggers. That's the third step. Now, the fourth step, we, by the way, we have to do these in order. We have to first master the internal triggers, then make time for traction, then hack back the external triggers. Finally, the last step we should do is called preventing distraction with pacts. 
And this uses this very old principle of a pre-commitment device, uh, doing something in advance that prevents us from getting distracted. Uh, and, and so this is another motto that I, I like to repeat that I hope people remember, is that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. So in the moment, these companies will get you unequivocally, right? If you're not prepared, they're going to get you. Mm. But there are so many things that we can do in advance to prepare for times when we know we might get distracted, okay? So we use forethought is the antidote to impulsiveness. And so how do we do that? Mm. We use technology against itself. Today, we have an explosion of free products uh, in the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store that help us tune out distraction when we want to focus. I'll give you two examples. The first is a product I use almost every single day. It's called Forest. It's free. Uh, every time I want to do focus work, I sit down at my desk, I open this app, and I type in how much time I want to do focus work for. And when I do that, I see this little virtual tree. And I hit the timer. The you know, timer starts. The virtual tree is planted. If I pick up the phone and do anything with it, the little virtual tree dies. Okay? <laughs> Stupid little virtual tree. Little it's tree. meaningless, but it's a pre-commitment. It's a pact. That exactly, right? <laughs> so that's just a little bit of a reminder to, to, to make this pact, this pre-commitment, that I want to do what I plan to do, which is to do focus work as opposed to whatever it is I might get distracted uh, with on my phone. Second example is a company called Focusmate. And full disclosure, I invested in this company because I liked it so much. Focusmate... It's kind of like chat roulette without, without all the, the dirty stuff. So basically what you do, you, <laughs> you log in for a set period of time. You say, okay, I want to do focus work from 8 to 10 in the morning. And you find a focus mate for that period of time. You log in, you see them on a, a little video display. They see you. You say, hey, how you doing? My name's Nir. I'm working on such and such. You're working on that. And you go for a set period of time. Mm. And just that other person, knowing that that other person is, is working while you are, is is a, is a form of a pre-commitment. It's a form of a pact uh, that we can take to make sure we get work done. So those are the four steps. We master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and you uh, prevent distraction with pacts. I love that. I love the fourth part. Um, that was great. I but have, by the way, you don't do it first. <laughs> make yeah, sure you do the so other stuff first. Well, <laughs> it has I, to be in order. Know, the, the one thing that I'm thinking of is like step one is for some a lifetime of work. Well, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, resolve all it's not about it's not about getting rid of your internal triggers it's learning yeah. to deal with them in a healthier manner mm. right so instead of drinking away your problems with booze yeah. you're losing you're, you're learning how to deal with them in a healthful manner and the same goes for I'm our technology thinking, yeah i'm just thinking like if i you know were to try to get rid of all of my ex existential crises you know I, I think that it would take like multiple lifetimes right but wait again <laughs> you're, you're not getting rid of them you're learning how to cope with them and they will mm -hmm. always be there it is suffering you know the buddha said this yeah. it suffering is part of the human condition it is never going to go away sure. the question is what do we do in response do we reflexively reach for our phone to escape reality mm -hmm. or do we learn different techniques, such as what I describe as reimagining the trigger, reimagining the task, reimagining your temperament, so we can deal with those internal triggers in a healthier way. So after this, after this book, I mean, you know, we'll release this in September. Mm -hmm. um, here we are a few months prior. Um, you know, do you have an intention of kind of, um, you know, adding anything interactive to help people with this? I haven't planned on it yet. If you have any ideas, let me know. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I'm just I mean, thinking, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep I'm a list of different it. resources on my website, but yeah, you yeah, have I'm just thinking about how important community is, right? Yeah, and all yeah. this. And you talk about pact, right? Like I have a I have a friend who told me about a co-working space where mm -hmm. people go to work on their passions and there is a space in that in that house, really, it's a house in Venice where um 
people know when they walk in there that that is a deep workspace and you do not distract them. And it's just Love something it. about being around, you know, five to 10 other people that you know are doing deep work on something they really care about that encourages you to do it. Yeah. Right. Other friend Tommy has these phone free events where people come together and build community. So maybe integrating some type of, you know, how do we identify one or what are these additional habits that we can build to become indistractable? I can see how, you know, we, you know, in all things, we, I think we need support. Sometimes it yeah. comes from technology. Sometimes it comes from other people. And so a framework is a great place to start. Awareness is a great place to start. That's why I'm doing this. But then the next step is like execution implementation. Right. And how do we help people, you know, do more than just read a book? That's what, I mean, I love that's the, the fact that you're doing this because um, I think despair is the first step to defeat. Mm. That if we let ourselves buy this this lie that we're not able to do something, uh, then we don't do anything. We despair. And that is counterproductive. And we need other support. You know, I talk, so the first half of the book is everything we just talked about. That's only half the book. It's stuff you can do yourself. The second half of the book admits that you know, we live with others, right? Yeah. We have, what about our kids? What about our workplace? What about our relationships? So the second half of the book is really about how do we involve others? Uh, and, and, you know, when I, when I did this research of the book, even with this methodology, you know, I can teach you these four steps of how to become indistractable. But if your boss insists on calling you at 930 at night mm. and your livelihood depends on it, you can tell him you're indistractable, but if he doesn't buy it, then yeah, <laughs> you have to pick up yeah, the phone. Exactly. And so that's where I, I dove into you know, what makes an indistractable workplace. And I interviewed, I went to dozens of different companies and I found two companies that exemplified what I would call an indistractable workplace. And what I learned was it has nothing to do with the technology use. Mm. In fact, one of the companies that I profile in the book is Slack. And Slack is this company that everybody blames for keeping them connected and tethered, right? Everybody blames Slack. But if you go to Slack, in company headquarters, you'll see this big sign as soon as you walk in that says, work hard and go home. Hmm. Because Stuart Butterfield, the CEO, believes that that is one of the core values of the company. And if you're on Slack past six o'clock or on weekends, you get chastised. What are you doing? Like, this is not what we do in our company culture. Oh, wow. And so it's not just that. about like, you know, saying, okay, well, this is our rule or, or this company is doing a, a, a email free Fridays. We should do that. No, no, that never works. What works is establishing a culture with what's called psychological safety, where people can raise their hands and say, hey, you know what? Um, getting an email at 930 at night doesn't do it for me. Like, this is not healthy. I don't like it. Uh, and, and those companies that have that kind of work environment, they don't have the problem with distraction. So it turns out that distraction is the canary in the coal mine. If your company has this always-on culture, uh, then it turns out there's all kinds of other problems of people not feeling psychologically safe to bring up their problems. And we have to deal with that. I love this idea of psychological safety because I also think outside of distractions, fundamentally at a company, you want intelligent people to speak up and share their ideas so that Mm -hmm. you can grow and learn. And if there's not psychological safety, people are more afraid of being wrong right. and being chastised. And so new ideas don't come to light. Um, I know that you have a hard stop, so I really appreciate your time. This was great. Um, I think if like our minds are changed one time in a day, that's pretty awesome. So thank <laughs> you for your time. A lot to reflect on. And it's great to meet you as well. My pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been 
a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and, and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. Uh, you can follow me on social media at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium and Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Look Up Podcast um, on Facebook. So check us out. Uh, you can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up podcast. Mm-hmm.